Hey friends, I'm Christine Chappell, and you're listening to the Hope and Help podcast from IBCD, where we host biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. In this episode, we chat with John Unwuchekwa about the topic of prayerlessness. For more help on the issues we discussed today, visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help, where you can access notes from today's episode and browse related resources from our digital library. Before we get started, let me introduce you to our guest. John Unwuchekwa is a pastor at Cornerstone Church in Atlanta, Georgia, and a council member of the Gospel Coalition. He's the author of Prayer, How Praying Together Shapes the Church, and What If I Don't Desire to Pray. He and his wife, Chandra, are the proud parents of one daughter named Ava. Hey there, John. Thanks so much for joining us for the show today. Hey, glad to be here. It's an honor. Before we get started in our conversation, would you take a few minutes to share why you wanted to write resources on this particular topic? Yeah, the very first thing was because I struggled on it, right? So I didn't want to write it from the position of an expert trying to teach novices how to get better. I really wrote it as an exercise for me and for my own heart and my own soul. I had been so impacted just by the models of prayer that I've had in my life, right? From my mom, I spent some time in D.C. with a pastor and a dear friend of mine, Mark Dever. Uh, This is seven years ago now. And I was just so impacted by the way that their church prayed and the results that I saw from it, that in preparation to planting another church in Atlanta, I just felt like this has to be at the core of everything that we do and seeing the trials that we went through in those first few years and the way that God just met us. I think my belief in the power of prayer together as a church was cemented in my own mind, heart, and soul that when the request came, I jumped at it because I just felt like, yo, what I have is such good news and I just want to share it with everybody else who struggles to pray as much as I do. You wrote in your book, having the wind knocked out of me, literally and figuratively, was the tool God used to help me understand that prayer is breathing. Can you share a little of the personal story that you're referencing here and explain what you mean by this statement? Yeah. So, you know, to go backwards, June 7th, 2015, we planted our church, planted the church I currently pastor right now, April 10th, 2015, after you know, four and a half years of trying to adopt. Me and my wife were in Savannah, Georgia, preparing to meet the little girl that we finally got matched with. And April the 10th, they called us and they said, hey, y'all are just going to have to go home. The adoption fell through. It's not going to work. So we're heartbroken. The next Tuesday, I'm at a conference in Orlando preparing to speak and we're at dinner. And long story short, I get a call my mom's trying to get a hold of my brother. She can't track him down. She's concerned that something is going on. So she asked me to check on him. So I make phone calls around and around and around. And a few minutes later, you know, I'm sitting on the front of this Longhorn Steakhouse talking to my god brother. And I find out that my 32-year-old brother died. You know, went to sleep in his car, didn't wake back up. And it just, it wrecked me. And I remember feeling just hurt, angry, betrayed, 
alone, like all of those feelings were, you know, clearly as clear as day directed at God. And um, I remember just kind of in the days and the months to come, just the reflex of my soul and my heart was this honest, unfiltered, uncensored directing of every thought and emotion, fear, concern, explicitly towards God. And that was a thing that just made me look at that and compare that to what I had been calling prayer for, you know, the 30 years prior to my brother dying. And I just realized whatever I was doing before this was more cold, sterile, rehearsed, wrote. It didn't feel real and substantial and just like this deep crying out to God. And so I really view that point in my life as the uh, really this line of demarcation, this border that showed this clear sense of it wasn't until after my brother passed suddenly that I learned how to pray. I just felt like I couldn't do anything. And I really felt this need of, you know, I need God's help. Um, and my only hope is that he would provide that help. And so all I could do was cry out to him. And so in a couple of the in the two books that you wrote, you often refer to prayer as breathing for the Christian. Yeah. I think originally it comes from a quote, and I don't remember off the top of my head who said it, but you open up the book with it. But just that idea that to be Christian and, and to pray is like to breathe in a right. life. And so can yeah. you talk a little bit about that? You search Google and half the people say it's Martin Luther, half the people say it's Martin Luther King. So we'll just say, all right, Martin says um, (laughs) to to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. And the point that they just try to drive in is in the same way that our life uh, takes place really in the space of our lungs, right? People think of our heart as the thing that gives us life, and that is, but our lungs are the things that take in the oxygen and to breathe it out that gives the oxygen to our heart to give us life. And so breathing is just this essential, natural part of living that is foundational to what it means to be alive. And you look through scripture and you even take into account our own personal experience and prayer is that same thing. Like, we experience our new life in Christ by calling out to God to be saved. Prayer doesn't save us. Jesus Christ saves us, but it is through this prayer and accepting this communion with God that enables us to take a hold of this oxygen that gives us life. And the same way that we come into this thing is the way that we're meant to continue constantly taking in the promises of God and repeating them back to him. And yeah, so it really just helps just to give a good word picture and reminder of just what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be God's is to constantly be in relationship with him through prayer. 
Well, I really appreciate that you offer just that illustration because I just kind of wonder at what point is maybe prayerlessness, just a lack of understanding of what it even is to yeah, approach yeah. God through prayer. So maybe you do a really great job of this in the books that you wrote for Crossway. But I wonder maybe in this conversation, you could just offer us a definition of prayer, maybe what it is and what it isn't. So it helps you and I just to set a paradigm. We think of prayer as initiative, right? We think of it as an initiatory work, something that I've got to do. And so I've got to drum up all of this stuff inside of me. And we think prayer is beginning a conversation with God, but prayer is not initiatory. Prayer is reactive. It is responsive, right? So what prayer is, is we are calling on God to fulfill the promises that he made, right? So God is always the initiator. God always speaks first. You go through the whole Bible, and what you'll find is that in every relationship God has with somebody, God is the one that speaks first. God calls them. And so in prayer, what we do is we hear what God says. We hear what God is like. And when we find ourselves in scenarios in life, where our power comes to an end, then what we do or what the people of God have always done is they call on God to fulfill those promises. Gary Miller in his book, Calling on the Name of the Lord, just does an amazing job of this, where he takes Genesis 4, 26, and it's just this verse that says, at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. And what he's going to do is use that, take that thread through the whole Bible and show that same point. Prayer is calling on God to fulfill his promises. Here's how it goes. God makes man, blesses them, starts a relationship with them, uh, gives them everything that they need, even a restriction that was meant for their good. Adam and Eve sin. God comes through uncoerced and provides hope, right? God says, I'm going to send a seed into this world, and he's going to crush the head of the snake. And God's like, what you messed up, I'm going to restore and give you a better future than what you lost in the fall. And Adam and Eve have Cain and they say, yo, this is it, right? So so Eve says, yo, I'm going to call him Cain because I've gotten a man uh, with the help of the Lord. God fulfilled his promises. Well, Cain kills his brother and they say, maybe, <laughs> maybe we're going to have to wait some time hmm. for God to really fulfill what he would do. And then Genesis 4 kind of gives this genealogy of the line of Cain. And you just see mankind getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And then Genesis 4, 26 says this. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. And it's at that time, people started to say, listen, God made a promise. It seems like we don't experience it right now. So God, I'm just going to repeat back to you. I'm going to call on you to fulfill what it is that you said that you would do. So it helps if we don't think of prayer as like a serve in tennis, like there's a ball that's still, and I'm going to be the one to set this ball in motion. It's better if we think of prayer as a return. God has already served it. All we're doing is returning the ball back across the net. Building on that, then, why do you think so many of us struggle with an earnest desire to pray? So I think in one hand, 
I think we struggle with it because we don't know what it is. We don't know what it does. And we don't really have this clear understanding of the way that Jesus Christ talks about prayer, Mm -hmm. right? You go through the whole Bible and you listen at all the words that Jesus says. And it's like, Jesus is no more encouraging than when he talks about prayer, right? So this concept of prayerlessness that leads us to this sense of guilt and shame and, oh, I know I should pray more. It's like, if you feel those things, you probably feel those things because you're listening to yourself more than you're listening to Christ, right? Jesus Jesus doesn't condemn us for that. He's constantly, whenever Jesus talks about prayer, he constantly talks about the incentives, the goodness of God. Matthew 7, Jesus talks about prayer. And what he tells us is this, yeah, yo, listen, hey, John, hey, Christine, like God answers your prayers because of his goodness, not yours, right? So anybody that's tempted not to pray because they feel like they haven't been good enough, Christ is going to say, wait, 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 wait. God answers your prayers because of his goodness, not yours. So don't let your failures or insufficiency keep you away. Hey, listen, when it comes to prayer, God has something for you. He's willing to reward you. We take prayer and I think we use it to measure our faithfulness. And when we do it, we become self-righteous. When we don't, we lean to self-pity and we constantly use prayer as this litmus test to tell us how we're doing in God's sight instead of (laughs) prayer being something that is about God, not about us, right? Prayer is supposed to remind us about God's goodness. It's not just to it's it's not just meant to make us focus on our badness, right? Prayer is meant to like link us to peace. And so I think we struggle with prayer because we tend to view prayer as a litmus test and we don't view prayer as a straw, right? If I could use another word mm-hmm. picture. Everybody wants peace, right? And I think peace is like cold water for people whose souls are parched. And prayer isn't the water. Prayer is the straw, right? Prayer is the vehicle through which we get to experience that peace. And I think we tend to struggle with prayer because we we make it or we try to make it do something it was never meant to do. Mm. Yeah, that's that's a really great reminder. Just as you're talking, I'm sitting here, you know, thinking about the faithfulness of God, even in our faithlessness in this particular yeah. area. Hebrews 7.25 talks about how Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. Yes. And Romans 8.34 yes. says that Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God and he is interceding for us. So even the Bible gives us these assurances that even when we are struggling in this area, that Christ is so good to us that he's faithful. Absolutely. He's faithful Absolutely. to our prayer life, I think, even more than we are. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The the topic of prayer is never meant to increase anxiety. Mm -hmm. So if the subject of prayer is broached and anxiety starts to well up into your heart because you think, 
I haven't done it long enough. Christ says, that's fine. We're not heard because of our many words. Well, I haven't been particularly good. Christ says, well, that's fine because your prayers are answered based on God's goodness, not yours. Well, I don't really know what to pray about. Well, that's fine because God knows what you need before you ask them. Well, I haven't prayed at all. Well, that's fine because the Holy Spirit hasn't stopped. And so wherever prayer is mentioned, it's supposed to alleviate anxiety inside of us. And I think we struggle with prayer uh, somewhat just because we're unfamiliar with the way that our Lord talks about prayer and the amazing blessing that it is to us and for us. Yeah. And even in the book, you talk about how it's not necessarily natural, you know, even right. though we are designed to be in communion and, and fellowship with the Lord, this particular language is something we learned how to speak when we were babies. It's like we almost have to learn how to speak to God. And his word is so gracious and merciful to teach us and to give us the words to pray, even when we don't know what yeah. it is that we should be saying. And maybe some of us are struggling in our prayer life because God doesn't seem to be giving us what we're asking for in our prayers. And you write that, quote, our affections are ultimately what shape our agenda, especially in prayer. And you also write, quote, it's possible to pray for things that are good and acceptable while still effectively asking God to fund our idolatry. That yeah. was a truth bomb right there. So <laughs> right, what do yeah. you mean by those statements? Yeah, I mean that we tend to define good or bad based on moral or immoral, mm -hmm. right? So it's like we would think, oh, yeah, it's acceptable to pray for God to give me this job that I want, right? That's a good thing. Or God, give me this promotion or God, help me to have this. Well, that's a fine thing to pray for. And if I pray, hey, God, I'm getting ready to go rob this bank. I pray that you would provide me safety and success. We would say that's silly because you're praying for a bad thing. That's a wrong thing. God's not going to give you that wrong thing. But yeah, these right and acceptable things, God should give you those right things. And I think the line of demarcation between good things to pray for and bad things to pray for don't just fall along the lines of moral or immoral, but they really should be thought of in terms of glory, right? So when Jesus starts off and they're like, Lord, teach us to pray. And what he says, this is this, look, our father who art in heaven, cause your name to be hallowed. Cause your name to be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The model prayer that Christ gives us is really a prayer where if you focus on the pronouns, you understand the first half of this prayer that Jesus is prescribing to every human being doesn't have a first person pronoun until the second half of the prayer. The first half of it is all about God's glory, God's glory, God's glory. We want your glory to be seen in the earth. It's possible for us to pray for very, very good things in order for us to be glorified, us to be satisfied. Tim Keller says this, idols aren't just when we give ourselves to bad things, but it's when we make good things, God things. And it's possible to pray for very, very good things but to center your sense of worth and identity on those things. It's possible to pray for a promotion and want God to give you the promotion, 
But if inside that promotion is your source of hope and peace and love and affirmation, and you feel like you're absolutely worthless unless you get that, and that once God gives you that, you'll finally find your sense of worth in that promotion of that thing, God being the loving father that he is, knows that that good thing would be a very bad thing to give to you because you would look for fulfillment in that bad thing when you should find it in him. And so what God in his goodness is going to do, uh, that he's never going to fund our idolatry, even if it comes in the package of things that are morally neutral. So, John, you wrote in the book, and I think you used the phrase a few times, just kind of cautioning readers against the mentality that in prayer we approach God as if he's a, like a genie, you know, yeah, a genie in a bottle. Right. And then there's also the other side. You're almost so afraid of treating God as a genie that you're, yeah. you, you cower in fear of maybe asking boldly. Could you just touch on that tension between maybe I, I shouldn't be asking for this good thing because... God's not a genie, or we go and say, oh, no, he's a genie. Let's just keep asking. And then we get right. discouraged yeah. and disheartened. Like, well, now I haven't got it. So I should, what's the point of even praying? Yeah, yeah no, no, no. I definitely feel like that there's two ways to fall off of that cliff, right? Mm -hmm. One is to treat God as a genie. The other one is to treat God like an employer that you don't want to make mad. So you're not going to ask for that day off of work that you need, right? That mm. there's this side where we can just have these wrong perspectives of who God is. And so one of the ways that I've found to best balance that, and I've, I forget who taught me this, I've just had so many great teachers in prayer through the year, is just being reminded of how important the words so that are in prayer right? That they, they just clarify. So I'm not content with saying, God, we, I pray that you would give me this promotion. Or God, we pray that you would bless us with kids. Oh God, I pray that you would give us peace, but being able to say, God, I pray that you would give us all of these things so that, right? And mm -hmm. so I constantly want to be reminded of, I'm praying to God for things and those things are not meant to be an end in themselves. They're meant to be a channel through which God's grace and glory and goodness would flow in the world. And so on one hand, I don't fall into the trap of treating God as a genie because the things I'm praying for are not the end. The glory of God is the end. Mm -hmm. I exist for him. He does not exist here for me. But on the other side, I don't fear asking God for things, because I am reminded that the things that I ask God for are not ends in themselves. They are actually platforms to a greater end. And at the end of the day, I'm reminded that God is a father. And throughout the scripture, God says God loves to give good gifts to his kids, right? I've got a three-year-old daughter, and I want her to ask me for things. There's a special joy that I get in giving and providing. And I think we can be more free to ask God for things if at the end of the day, we do what Christ did, right? That Christ in the garden, Lord, if there's any other way, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will, that there's a way that we can ask of things to say, Lord, I don't have to edit myself out of fear of being self-centered. I'm going to pour out the desires of my heart to you. 
And I'm going to trust that how you answer this prayer is actually the best thing for me. And so my work isn't done in the self-editing on the front end as much as it is done in the embracing whatever outcome God provides. And so I'm going to pray, but I'm going to be reminded that whatever God does in his providence is the right thing. It's the good thing. It's the true thing. And I'm going to be just as thankful for the answer to the prayer as I am going to be bold in making the request. Those are really great reminders, John. Thank you for speaking to that. Now, you also write in the book that, quote, prayerlessness is a blindfold that makes us unaware to the dangers around us. Why is that statement true? When we pray and we ask God for help, we are acknowledging the true nature of the problem. We're acknowledging that we're outmatched, right? Where we're prayerless, here's what takes place. We're blinded to just how outmatched we are, right? I can think of Peter at the Last Supper and Christ says, yo, y'all are all going to flee, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody's going to stand with me. And Jesus says, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. But then his words are, but Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith wouldn't fail. And immediately Peter says, not me, Lord. I'm going to stand with you. Essentially, he's saying, Jesus, you can keep your prayers. I have my resolve. And he mistakenly feels that the resolve, the willpower, the will on the inside is all that he needs to stand. But when we pray, we are reminded, right, at the end of the Lord's Prayer, pray that God would not lead us into temptation but he would deliver us from the evil one, that we are to pray for protection, that when we pray, we are reminded that when it comes to our strength versus the world, flesh, and the devil, we are completely outmatched. Our willpower, our resolve is not enough. And so in prayer, we acknowledge the nature of our weakness. We acknowledge the obstacles that are against us, but we acknowledge that we have a great help in the Lord. And so what prayer does is at the same time, it opens our eyes to just how much we are outmatched, but it also opens our eyes to the fact that if God is on our side, that we're never the underdog. John, yeah. what role does the local church play uh, in our private is... and public prayer life? Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the blessings of Christianity or our faith is that it is not an individual religion. And when I say it's not an individual religion, I'm not trying to take away from the personal responsibility that we all have to God, but Christianity is inherently corporate. So every metaphor that the Bible is going to use uh, about the church is familial, right? Mm -hmm. You you are the bride of Christ. You're not just one stone, you're a building made up of many stones. You are a flock, right? On and on and on. And when it comes to prayer, it's this kind of thing where it's like the church is meant as a resource and a thing that fuels our prayers, right? So we all have blind spots. So, I mean, and this is just a, for an example, mm -hmm. um, we all have blind spots, right? So when it comes to sin or things that offend God, one of the ways that I've seen the church just be an amazing resource in individual prayer 
is when we gather as a church to take time together confessing our sins to the Lord. And one of the unique things that it does is as one person stands up and helps to lead all of us out, invariably, we teach people that are struggling to pray that in order to build a robust prayer life, you need these three things. And these three things will help you build a robust prayer life. You need God's word, right, to hear about the promises of God. You need God's people, the church, to gather and pray with. And then you need these two words. These two words are the magic words that will give you the most robust prayer life you can imagine. And those two words are this, me too, me too. That when you sit down and when somebody prays, you participate with them. So as they're confessing their sin to the Lord in the presence of the congregation, then you can sit and say, me too. Lord, Lord, I had no clue. Like, they're confessing to you the fact that they wake up in the morning and they struggle to spend time with you, but it's not a struggle at all to get on their smartphone and to look at the mentions of what people say about them. And they realized how much their self-worth is pulled from strangers instead of their creator. And they're praying, asking for you to change them. God, I didn't even think that was wrong, but in one prayer from them, I'm getting the diagnosis of the anxiety that I have, as well as the solution. And in order to join in, all I have to say right now is me too. God, me. Yes, that's true of me. And we join in with their prayers. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, when they read from the scriptures and they read about if anybody confesses their sin, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive them and to cleanse them from all unrighteousness. That as sure as we said, me too, to the confession of sin, we can say me too, to the apprehension of forgiveness and grace. Praying together as a church, it helps us know things that we should care for, but we haven't, mm -hmm. right? It helps us see things that we care for or things that have been on our heart, but we just don't have the words to say. And we know the blessing of trying to describe something that's wrong with us or something that we enjoy, not being able to find the words. And we know the blessing of being in conversation with somebody who has those words. Mm -hmm. And now we aren't just able to express it then and there. But as long as we live, we go on through life and we've been introduced to these new words that capture what goes on in our heart and soul. And now we're built up because now we can explain something explicitly that has just been implicit or muted or, or suppressed in our life. And this is what the church does. And so the church together helps to carry us along. And the more and more that we pray with people, uh, the more and more that we grow, right? Praying with people is not like cheating, right? It's, <laughs> it's not like uh, looking at somebody else's paper on a test. Throughout the book of Acts, prayer is something that is overwhelmingly corporate. When Jesus teaches us how to pray, throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus gives instruction, he's using singular pronouns, right? I, me, you. When he says, here's how you pray, he's going to use we and our, right? Mm -hmm. So from that standpoint, prayer is inherently corporate and the church helps to carry us along and to bring us to a place where we are 
mature and we know the things to pray for. Well, John, we've got time for a couple more questions. So okay. I want to go ahead and turn things to, you know, we I think we've got a good foundation on, on this topic and yeah. I definitely will point listeners to get your resources on prayer right. and what uh, what if I don't desire to pray? I'll mention more about those in just a minute. But yeah. practically speaking, if we're listening and we're like, yeah, that's me. I- I'm struggling yeah. with prayerlessness. What are some practical steps that we can take toward nurturing this area of our spiritual life? All right. So the first one that I'm going to give is more of a principle to help shape us. And then I'll give some like mm-hmm. quick next steps, things that you could do. Um If you're struggling to pray, I don't think the main problem is that you haven't just found the right regimen or routine, right? Mm -hmm. The routine, the practices, the application, those are all branches on the tree. They're not the root. I think the way that you pray either reaffirms or undermines your belief in the resurrection more than just about anything, right? that if you find yourself struggling to pray, don't make a beeline for routines. You gotta make a beeline to rejoicing in the resurrection and praying will be a byproduct of that. And so here's what I mean by that, a parable from my marriage. I've been married 13 years now and I still don't know where the measuring cups are in our house. (laughs) Uh, so, So I'll go to my wife and I'll be like, yo Chandra, where's the three fourths cup? And she'll say things like, we've been married 12 years and you still don't know where they are, right? Or uh, (laughs) at times when she's been reading her Bible, she'll say things like, have I been with you this long and you still don't know where the (laughs) cups are, right? My favorite that she'll say is, um, what would you do if I weren't here? And that's my favorite because I found that rhetorical questions are actually uh, more fun to answer than they are to ask. (laughs) Right. So so in my head, I'll think, well, if you weren't here, then I would have to go and look for them. And if history is an indicator of the future, I'm probably going to look really, really hard and I'm not going to find it. And I'm going to put myself through all that trouble. Like, why would I trouble myself when I could just trouble you? (laughs) Now, I say all that stuff in my head. I don't say it out loud to her. But here's what I do say to her. But, sweetheart, you are here. Yes, if you weren't here, I would have to go and do all this work on my own. But I'm asking you because you're here, you have the answers and you can guide and direct me towards where I need to go. And I think the difference that we get, right, the disciples were with Jesus in the garden and they fell asleep. He prayed. Jesus was able to withstand death on a cross while they were running away from people that didn't chase them. They leave the gospels as cowards. And then the book of Acts starts off and 50 days later, things change. And I just want to give you a list of things that they successfully did. Jesus, their leader died and was gone and they pray. Judas had betrayed them and they had to replace him. And the first thing they did was pray. Peter and John get thrown in jail. The Spirit of God breaks them out of jail, and the very first place that they go, Acts chapter 4, is a prayer meeting. Acts 6, it seems like ethnic tension is starting to brew to a place where it could threaten the unity of the church. And do you know what they do? They pray and choose 
deacons and you ask like, all right, what changed? How could these 12 who fell asleep on the most important night when Jesus himself was there asking them to pray and they didn't pray, and then in Acts, Jesus doesn't explicitly ask them to pray, and it seems like they can't stop praying. And I think the disciples found themselves with all of these problems, things that would have caused their anxiety to go through the roof time and again in the past. And I think they gathered together and said, yo, hey, yo, what should we do since Christ isn't here? How should we respond? And I'm guessing they said in their head, ah, shoot, well, I don't know what to do, and we're going to have to work real hard, but if history is an indicator of the future, then it's probably going to be the case that we're going to work real hard and still not know what to do. And I just feel like they stopped themselves and said, wait, 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 we've been saying, what should we do since Christ isn't here? But they said, but he raised from the dead. He is here. Why should we trouble ourselves if we can trouble him and ask him? And that's why I feel like this firm and robust belief in the resurrection that you're next to every anxiety that comes your way, you have to be reminded that Jesus is alive, sitting on top of that anxiety, waiting to be brought in to the situation to provide solution and direction. And the more firm we are in belief that Jesus actually rose from the dead, I think that's the root, that's the linchpin that changes how we pray. So when we find ourselves struggling to pray, I think the first thing that we do is we rejoice in the resurrection. We remind ourselves that God is there. And so from that standpoint, I think if we deepen our belief and confidence and hope in the resurrection, that the regiments and the routines will help us out. So everybody that's a member of my church, I have their contacts in my phone, and I've got a Google Calendar reminder to pray. So this morning, it was pray for O and P. So everybody whose last name begins with an O or P, that as I'm sitting down in the Bible and reading God's Word, the promises that I am reading about in God's word, I'm praying that back, not just for me, but for folks that are on my list. And I think that helps to remind me that at the end of the day, uh, we tend to think the purpose of our scripture reading is application, uh, something that we must do. I think the purpose of scripture reading is supplication, right? Something that we must ask God for to help us do. So I'm constantly wetting my Bible reading with prayer. And I realize that those two go hand in hand. Find somebody else who's struggling to pray and who wants to pray and just make the commitment that, hey, let's do this together. When Jesus instructs us to pray, you look at Acts 3, and what you have in Acts 3 is it says, uh, Peter and John were going to the temple at the time of prayer to pray. And so you have these group of people that are praying together. I think one thing that makes prayer so hard for us is we in the West, it's this Western individualized Christianity that makes the pinnacle of prayer success my ability to be able to do it 
by myself on my own. That's how I'm going to know that I've really got this rich, vibrant prayer life with God. And I just don't think you see that anywhere in the Bible. I've got a friend from my church that lives five doors down from me. And in quarantine for the first three months, I did not exercise. I did not lift a weight. I did not walk fast anywhere, right? My legs moved so slow. I was struggling. And Mike has all these weights in the back of his house. And so do you know what? I have worked out consistently four days a week for the past three months, but I haven't worked out one time by myself. At the end of the day, it's a success has been achieved. I've I've worked out, I've built up strength, I'm feeling better, I'm healthy, but I know full well that health would never have come without the help of somebody else. And nor do I think that in order for me to really be successful, I've got to get to the standpoint where I can do it by myself. Nope. As long as Mike lives down the street from me, then I'm going to trust that that's going to be the way that God is going to use to keep me healthy. And I think prayer is the same way. Get somebody else who wants this as much as you do and say, let's do this together. Let's build in a rhythm. And I think you'll be surprised at just how much your prayer life takes off with those few things. Bring somebody else in to it. Focus on the resurrection. Repeat the promises of God back to him. And then one last thing, become a historian. I think that we get discouraged in prayer because we tend to form our complete theology on prayer based on how God has answered our most recent prayers. When instead, if we just kept a track record of the faithful ways that God has responded to us, that we could look back at that. And when our souls seem faith starved, we can be reminded, no, listen, God did answer these prayers. I got to be reminded of that. And so I would just say, keep track of the things that you pray for and the ways that God has answered those prayers. And that ledger is something that I think God uses to help to encourage us in prayer. Well, John, we are at the end of our time together. And so I'd like to invite you to do something that I ask every guest of the Hope and Help podcast to do, which is to speak directly to the audience. There may be someone listening to this episode whose desire to pray has been pretty low as of late. Maybe they can relate to a lot of the things we've discussed today and they're feeling a bit guilty about it. What would you say to this person to encourage them to talk to their Heavenly Father, even when it feels awkward or hard? I would say the guilt that you may feel about your lack of prayer is the reason why you need to pray. Because as you actually talk to our father, the one to whom which we pray, uh, guilt is not his agenda. The longer that we go without praying, it just leads us into this cycle of guilt and despair, guilt and despair, guilt and despair, that when we come to God in prayer, I want you to know he never meets you with what took you so long but he always meets you with, I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you're here. And so I would say for you, take your anxiety to God. Let any anxiety you feel just serve as a divine alarm clock to remind you that it's time to pray. 
Thank you, John, for those words of encouragement. If there's someone listening to this show who wants to get connected with you and your ministry, where's the best place for them to find you online? Yeah, on Twitter, J-A-W-N-O. So John O spelled that way. And I recently started a podcast in quarantine. Uh, It's called Four in the Morning. It's the time that I wake up Mm -hmm. each day. And it's just a podcast about hope. Four in the Morning is a time where it looks dark outside, but it's technically morning. And it's just kind of this daily act of defiance for me where I just, I'm not going to let my surroundings determine how I feel or how I live. And so that's probably one of the best ways just to hear more from me and how I engage and think through life. And if you're looking for good coffee, portrait coffee. So uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yes, I just I just bought some online. I'm super excited to try it out in my espresso machine. So thank there you. We for, go. I can't wait to get a special delivery in a few days in my mailbox. Got you and covered. Yeah, I'm super excited about it. I want to let the listeners know if you're interested to get connected with John or also even check out the resources that we've spoken about today. So I don't usually interview someone on two books, but in this case, I did because they're pretty much linked. So there is a mini book or a smaller book that John wrote for Crossway, and it's called What If I Don't Desire to Pray? A very helpful, practical mini book that you could use for yourself to get encouragement and some practical steps to move forward or to give to someone else or to even keep on on hand at church in the church book area. Uh, But he has a larger book. If you're interested in diving more deeply into this topic, it's such a great read. The the other title of the full length book is called Prayer, How Praying Together Shapes the Church. And so you can scroll down to the show notes of this episode, click the link there, and that will take you to a page on IBCD's site where you can access links to these resources. John, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule today to have this conversation. I know that I have been blessed by just the the biblical wisdom and the insights and the way that you connected the gospel to this problem. I'm I'm super thankful for you taking the time and just for sharing with us today. Uh, Thank you so much, Christine. I was honored. Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help. There you can check out the show notes from today's episode. If you enjoyed today's conversation, why not subscribe to the podcast? That way you'll be notified when new weekly episodes release. Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help podcast a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help podcast.